On today's episode of Before You Kill Yourself, I have Kevin Horchard, who is a chartered psychologist in Chester, England, of all places. He's way over there. He's, he's way on the other side. All right, maybe not that far, but it's far. Uh, he talks to us today about nightmares. We, we get into the link between nightmares and suicidality, and we also talk about uh, recovery for people who are struggling with anorexia and some implications for that. And of course, if we're talking about nightmares, we're also talking about sleep hacks. And we, we have something special in here because a lot of people who are struggling with anxiety and panic attacks, um, it, you know, one of the, the common antidotes for that is mindful breathing. And we're going to talk about why that's not the best antidote for people who are struggling with panic attacks and anxiety. Uh, and we're going to give you the, the, the real antidote to that. So, so tune in, check it out. This one's a doozy. Uh, it's, it's shorter because we're packing in so much information. I'm excited about it. And if you haven't already, go to thrivewithleo.com to work with yours truly for one-on-one coaching. If you're, if you're struggling with trauma or tragedy if you want to turn those into upward trajectories, you go to thrivewithleo.com, and you and I, we can get to tomorrow together. I, I saw your research on your sleep and suicidality, uh, and I, I think it's really fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see like what you uncovered and, and what were some of your findings from that. Hmm. Sorry, hold on. I'm, I'm just ha- I've just had to switch to another headset because I was getting interference on the other one. Could, do, do you mind re- repeating that? I'm sorry. Oh yeah. So I, I definitely uh, you know I'm excited to talk to you about your your research and uh, you know regarding sleep and, and suicidality and, and what your findings were from that. Mm. Well, I've been looking at this since uh, 2010, and uh, it's been a it's been a strange bit of a strange one. Uh, I started, there, there was a lot of good work being done in the U.S. actually, uh, work done in Florida uh, by Thomas Joyner's team. And when I started my PhD, I looked at, uh, first I wanted to replicate it, wanted to see if it, if it held up. And I saw that some of the effects did, particularly surrounding nightmares. So I continued to explore uh, just to see how robust those effects were, and I started to think there's there's a few assumptions there. There's a few assumptions about uh, is it you know is it uh, nightmares that lead to to suicidal thinking, or you know is it suicide thinking that leads to more nightmares? And to me, that hadn't been uh, clearly tested. So that was one of the first things I set out to do, uh, and I tried. To do that with a diary study, and actually we did find some support for uh, this being a, a unidirectional effect. So when you're recording, uh, or at least when you're when you're measuring uh, sleep disturbances and suicidal thinking, you see that uh, if a sleep disturbance has occurred the night before, well, the the, the morning when you wake up, you you want to hurt yourself. Uh, you're four times more likely to want to hurt yourself than than if you didn't have um, a sleep disturbance. But the really interesting thing came from the, the problems with the data. Uh, 
and there were quite a, quite a number of, uh, of issues with the data. Namely that you could only really see the effect if those people uh, had previously self-harmed. So it seemed to me like, yeah, okay, we can say that uh, sleep disturbances increase suicidality, but I don't think that it was, or at least the, the data told me that it, it wasn't universal. You needed to have something else. And uh, to me, that's where I started looking at the uh, acquired capability. So had people already self-harmed or were they, were they high in, in this uh, acquired capability for suicide? And uh, I think previously when, when you messaged me, you mentioned a, a paper uh, that I, okay, I, think I, I think I published it in 2016 or 2017. I can't remember anymore. Uh, but we saw just that, that if you had the acquired capability, then the interaction between that acquired capability and the sleep disturbance then led to uh, an increase in suicidality. Not the, but if, if you just had the nightmares or the, the insomnia, you didn't see the effect. You know, uh, you, you just, um, it just wasn't predictive of the suicide thoughts. So when you talk about acquired capability, uh, you're referring to like if there's a gun in a house or access to pills. Is that what we're referring to? Uh, in part, so that, that, that would be access to means. And I think that that's something that, that we need to consider. But acquired capability, as it's been defined, seems to be much more about um, uh, fearlessness about death. So psycho it's, it's more, much more psychological. Uh, and, and the way in which I operationalize that in, in, the, in the study that I just mentioned, uh, I look specifically at people self-reporting a history of self-harm. So acquired capability in the sense that they have demonstrated that behavior before. Uh, and then when you say history of, of self-harm, uh, what, mm -hmm. what has that uh, typically looked like? So... Uh, this is where there's a there's some uh, distinctions between the the UK and and uh, and the US. Uh, in the UK, when we talk about self harm, we tend to talk about it regardless of suicidal intent. So, any acts of self harm, it could be what in the US is termed as a, uh, non suicidal self injury, uh, all the way up to uh, suicide attempts. So, self harm could be any of those. So, I mean, you know, because you, I know you also did some work on anorexia. What do, yeah, yeah. so would um, eating disorders or like binge eating, would that, con, would that be considered as self-harm? Because there, there are plenty of injury, injurious uh, injuries mm -hmm. that occur from, from either overeating or, you know, vomiting, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think this is something that uh, a lot of, it, it would depend on which researchers you, you speak to. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, the definitions that I use in my work tend to exclude things like uh, inducing vomiting and, and so on and, and uh, binge eating from, from self-harm. Uh, it's, it's one of those distinctions we, we tend to make. So uh, it's, we just don't include it in most self-harm assessments. Uh, but I have looked into anorexia, as you say, particularly anorexia recovery, uh, because 
speaking to a, a few colleagues and indeed uh, people who were recovering uh, from anorexia, what we saw, uh, or anecdotally what we saw, was that as people were trying to recover, during times of stress, they were trying to, to give up those, uh, those anorexia-type coping behaviors, and instead they were starting to rely on, on other coping behaviors, and some of them did include self-harm. And so what I was interested in seeing was, does self-harm spike as people try to recover? Uh, is that basically, do they trade one coping strategy for another? Uh, in order to, to just try and, and find something that's perhaps a little bit more healthy, a bit more, more adaptive. And what, were, what was your finding on that? Because that, that is very interesting. Well, I can't say with any... Uh, I, I just can't say definitively what, what it is that, that's happening. Because when we did the, the original study, we essentially just had some cross-sectional data and of course, we saw that, yes, people were reporting uh, higher levels of self-harm at different time points in their recovery. But actually, uh, recovery from uh, eating disorders is one of those things that isn't as well uh, established. You know, it's not well defined. Some people will argue that, you know, you, you definitely need to have the, the, the BMI above 18, but uh, there's less, less emphasis on the psychological uh, but thankfully, that we're moving away from that. The psychological element of recovery is being looked at much more in depth. Uh, and so the measures of uh, stages of recovery that we use in our study, I don't feel are up to scratch. So this is why I'm a little bit reluctant to say, yes, we definitely saw a spike in self-harm depending on what stage of recovery, because I just don't think that our measure of recovery was particularly good. And this is something we want to address in future studies. Um, but in order to really do this question justice and really find out how do people you know, engage in, in different coping strategies as they try to recover, uh, I think we really need to try and, and access a, uh, a client population or a, rather a patient population. And that's particularly difficult to do, uh, doing any research in mental health. Uh, there's always gatekeepers. And while I do have some colleagues that work in, in the National Health Service here uh, that, that work on um, treatment boards for eating disorders, it's, it's, a, it's a big ask, particularly considering how stretched they are in terms of resources and, uh, and just the caseload. Uh, you know, so, going back a little bit, when you, when you were talking about history of self-harm, uh, uh, being a, uh, a predictor, uh, you know, are, is playing sports involved in that? Because, you know, I played uh, high school, college football, and yes, I'm not self-harming my, I'm, I'm not self-harming, but I am putting myself in harm's way for sure. Yeah. And, and so what, yeah. what's been your findings with that? So that's actually, a, that's a really interesting thing because the, the uh, slightly older a uh, way of measuring acquired capability it did include things like uh, quite violent sports, uh, like uh, hockey or, or football or, you know, anything where you might have that, that injury. Uh, so you're quite right to bring that up. Uh, actually, what we've seen is that 
uh, that's really quite there's a, there's a, a big assumption in terms of, of culture there. So, you know, American football actually has gained popularity in the UK, but it doesn't have anywhere near the popularity that it does in the US, of course. Uh, so those kind of measures weren't really good uh, for, for measuring acquired capability, at least in, in uh, UK samples. So that we've moved away from those kind of, of questions when we're trying to discover about acquired capability. And it's much more focused on just general uh, fearlessness of death than particular sports. So I, I can't speak to uh, how, how much that contributes to increased suicidality, uh, unfortunately. But that, that's, a, that's a really cool project to, to look at. I think that there would be quite a bit uh, of interest in that. What led you down this path of studying um, suicide, self-harm, and sleep disturbances? Hmm. Um, that's, so, uh, do you know Rory O'Connor? Rory? Oh, yeah, you, you may yeah. have seen as well. I have, yeah. yes, yes. So, yeah, Rory was, uh, I was lucky enough that in my undergraduate, um, I took his elective on suicide behavior. And uh, if uh, if you've ever seen Rory speak, he speaks with such enthusiasm that you can't help but, but want to know more. And following that, uh, I did my master's and he was, uh, he was my supervisor for that. And again, just really infused me. So when I decided to, to look at, um, well, when I decided that research was my thing uh, and I applied for PhDs, um, First, I, I asked Rory if he was interested, but at the time he was actually trying to to create his uh, his model, the uh, the IMV model that he's uh, he's been working on for a while. So he was kind of full; uh, he had his hands tied. Uh, but uh, he put me in contact with some other people, and I started my PhD working with uh, Ellen Townsend down in, in Nottingham, who is uh, well, I can't speak highly enough of her. Uh, and she she was really interested in the in the idea, and we took it from there. Uh, I just personally, I've never been someone that slept really well. Uh, I yeah, I think that that's one of the, the big things. So when I when I started seeing this research coming out of the of the U.S., it really piqued my interest, and I just thought, you know, this needs more attention. And actually, if you if you look back. Uh, from that initial research that's been done since the early 2000s, uh, it's now really, you know, people are really taking sleep as a really big, important thing to contribute to, to positive mental health. You know, we, we spend a third of our lifetime asleep, and, you know, there's so, so much we still don't know. And it seems to be one of those things as well. Like, we, we have interventions that we know can improve sleep quality. So... Let's just find out how, how much of that could benefit mental health in general. And if we have those answers and they seem promising, then let's, uh, let's explore how we can maximize people's, people's well-being through something as simple as making sure they get enough, enough sleep. You, you know, it, it seems to be two parts of, or maybe there's three parts of sleep, but uh, there, there seems to be people who have a hard time falling asleep and then there are people who have yep. a hard time staying asleep. Are there usually mm. two different reasons for that? Or is it all linked to the same um, thing? Mm. 
I mean, they're both, uh, both of those characteristics are, uh, are things that, that would be asked in order to, to sign a, a diagnosis of insomnia. Um, I think there's, because I've tended to steer most of my research towards nightmares, I don't feel I can speak as strongly about uh, insomnia as a, a, in terms of sleep disorders. But um, as far as I'm aware, it's general uh, anxiety, um, anxiety and stress can, can increase the, the likelihood that people uh, find, you know, difficult to achieve sleep. Um, and I think that's it's the same for early morning awakenings. You know, people who are quite stressed uh, will be much more sensitive to, the, to that early morning awakening. So they'll, they'll wake up spontaneously. Yeah, you know, uh, but I... I you know, I find ahead, that sorry, uh, sorry, I find that during um, like right now it's April and, you know, the sun comes mm-hmm. up a little e- earlier. So I find myself yeah. waking up earlier naturally uh, yeah. and w- wanting to go to bed earlier. But then the sun's out. So <laughs> it, it you know, I started this podcast because I struggle with suicidal ideation. I don't have nightmares, but, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of research shows that it that the suicide spike in the spring because of mm. the sun coming up earlier and then mm. uh, going down later. So it, it causes this agitation where yep. you, you, you're, like you said, you, you're waking up earlier, but then when you want to go to sleep, it's still light outside. So it kind of messes with your head uh, and, and causes kind of a, a frustration. Have you, uh, have you found that in the research also? Well, I'm actually looking at uh, agitation with a with a group of uh, of students at the moment. Uh, yeah, and we're trying to to determine which one is the the more impactful uh, issue. Is it that it's the the sleep disturbance or is it the the daytime kind of agitation? We're trying to to unpick that question uh, right now. We're we're still collecting data, uh, so it's too early for me to say. But what the research has shown is that. Um, you tend to get presentations to, to accident and emergency departments. You tend to see that uh, around, well, this UK data shows that you see there's a big spike around 1 a.m. So people finding it difficult to sleep, difficult to switch off. You do see those presentations to, to A&E uh, around those times. Uh, so certainly, I think anything that, that raises, um, you know, uh, basically, physiological arousal is, is one of the things to, to take a look at. Uh, I think, and this is the, the common theme, I think, in, in pretty much most sleep disturbances, is that actually it really wreaks havoc with, with our physiological arousal. So that manifests as agitation during the day. And so definitely, uh, I, I'm really keen to find out what it is exactly that's, that's happening. Um, you know what? I, what I notice is, uh, and, and I noticed this thought occurring last night because you know anxiety obviously does play a part in it, and uh, I'm a high on that mm-hmm. scale. And I noticed that you know when it was like I think seven o'clock last night, and there was still yeah. light out. It made me feel like yeah. I need to be doing more. Like, like in my mm-hmm. head, I'm like the time is telling me that you know it's you know wind things down, slow things down. But I'm like. But there's light outside, so the, it would create this angst of maybe I haven't done enough with my day because usually the day ends when, you know, the sun is down, and then I, I kind of have this sense of completion. 
But, you know, when you mm-hmm. still see some sunlight out there, it kind of created this anxiety of, uh, did I forget to do something? Is there something more that needs to be done? And I, I wonder mm-hmm. how much of that could play into it. I was just noticing that, that, that having that thought last night. Mm. I mean, I, I think that that's a really great observation. Uh, I, and I, I mean, I, I imagine that you're probably uh, in this lockdown uh, stage, you know, like we are in the UK. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm finding the days are very long. You know, I've got plenty to keep me busy, but because, and, and as the days are, are lengthening, I'm thinking I could do this extra thing. And it just, it just keeps on, it does gnaw at me a little bit. Uh, so I think the, the days getting longer do make people think, oh, should I be doing something? Should I be using that to be productive? You know, I think a lot of people have this, um, at least I, I know I, I definitely do. They have this uh, the sensation that they, they have to produce, they have to uh, to be effective, they, they have to contribute in some way, and yeah, I think that's really tough actually. Um, so with the days lengthening, um, and actually the the um, the days, you know, the, the sunlight coming in. Um, I'm noticing, and maybe you've noticed this yourself. Uh, I'm remembering my dreams much more. Oh this yes, is something that. Oh yeah, so much yeah? more vivid. Is that, is that happening yeah. for you? Absolutely. I, yeah, I absolutely. think about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just uh, it's one of those things. Is actually I I'm terrible. I never remember my dreams except if I wake up with natural sunlight, and then it's it's the weirdest, wackiest dreams you can think of. Uh, but of course, if if I'm particularly anxious and I, and I have a nightmare, you can bet that that's going to be uh, pretty intense. So it's um, it's a double-edged sword. I kind of like remembering some of the wackier dreams, but I really could do with forgetting the uh, the more unpleasant ones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the now the the nightmares. Uh, I would assume that those uh, are more prevalent in people who have had some type of uh, childhood abuse, especially I, I would mm. imagine is heightened in people with uh, who had like sexual uh, abuse as kids. Are you finding a link between nightmares and a type of abuse or what, what are you linking the nightmares uh, to typically? So I've not uh, explored the, uh, the, the post-traumatic uh, stress element, but there is research that, that has linked uh, so very specifically, PTSD-style nightmares to increase suicide ideation. Uh, that research was done in uh, mid to late 2000s, and I think it's, it's been fairly consistent that, yeah, you, you do see this link. I, I've personally not looked into that, so I, I can't really speak to it. Um, but generally, when I have um, done research looking at nightmares and uh, I, I get emails from participants that, you know, just say, you know, I really, I'm really interested in, in the findings of this study because, you know, and then they'll tell me a little bit. And so uh, anecdotally, yeah, it does seem that there's, uh, there's trauma uh, from the people that, that contact me. Uh, and, uh, but I've not looked at anything specific. So I'm, I'm not certain if it's uh, uh, sexual abuse in nature or, or something else traumatic that's happened to them. Um, since you've struggled with uh, sleep yourself and and, and, mm. and doing so much research, what are the things that you would suggest to, to listeners in terms of improving their sleep? Uh, you know, leave no stone unturned 
<laughs> with this. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> wow. Um, I'm really not a, a poster child for uh, for good sleep. I mean, I'm uh, you know right now I'm I'm drinking my first my well actually uh, second very large cup of coffee uh, of the day, and it's you know you really shouldn't be drinking coffee uh, really after like 3 p.m. So I'm uh, and here it's, well, it's it's nearly 6 p.m. and you can bet that I'll be drinking coffee until. Very very late. I, if if I stop drinking the coffee, I get headaches. Now it's it's that bad. Um, so, um, but in terms of actually improving uh, your, your sleep, uh, there's a few things that I've tried to do. Um, so, I used to run quite a bit. Um, actually, that really got me through uh, depression after a really really difficult breakup back in my uh, early twenties. And so running was one of those things that really, really helped. Uh, just physical exercise, actually tiring yourself physically, it, it really helps with that agitation that, that, we, that we just talked about. Um, so exercise is always good. It doesn't have to be massive amounts, but uh, anything that, that gets the heart rate up for a little bit, um, that will help uh, considerably. I actually find that some of that is a, is a bit... Uh, like meditation and i've tried things like mindfulness uh several years ago i was very skeptical about mindfulness and then i i really started to to devour you know the the, the research on this and um it can be really effective uh i've uh i'm i'm in no means an expert in terms of the the actual techniques but uh whenever i have done it i have uh I found that it can work, but it's, it's really tricky. You know, it's like, uh, I think it's, it's actually, a, it's a skill, you know, it's like riding a bike. You will not be very good at it in the first instance. And it takes a lot of attempts before you, you get really good at doing it. Um, can you give us like so one that, or two of the mindful techniques that you've done that you remember? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that I've tried is, uh, actually the, uh, I remember because I was with uh, one of my colleagues, um, Lee Hubble Williams, who, who does a lot of stuff on mindfulness, uh, particularly mindful eating. And um, we were uh, we'd actually gone on a, on a, <laughs> a geeky holiday um, and uh, we were on the beach and I was trying this mindfulness stuff and I was just listening to the waves and that, that really uh, helped. So the idea is that you focus on something some people like to focus on their breathing. I wouldn't recommend that if you're feeling anxious or prone to, to panic attacks because sometimes focusing on the breathing can remind people of, uh, of those sensations. You know, you're, if you're overly focused on, on breathing, it, it might make you think that you, you may be starting a, to have a, a panic attack. Um, but so uh, focus on, a, on, a, on a, a particular sensation. Maybe uh, for me, I, I used to focus on the, the sound of the waves. Some people like to focus on, say, uh, a candle, the flame of a candle flickering. And the idea is that you, you focus on that element and you left, you, you're just leaving your, your thoughts to drift. Some of them will come up and, of course, they'll be pretty nasty. You know, we all have these nasty thoughts that pop up. And the idea is just to, we notice those thoughts coming up. And that might divert our attention for a bit, but we don't beat ourselves up. We just focus back on the flame 
or focus back on the sound or that breathing, whatever it is that, that you're, um, you're focusing on. And it's the idea that the thing, the best way I can uh, explain it is a bit like, um, you know, our mind is a bit like a, like a radio that just constantly throwing annoying ads at us. And uh, so it's not about turning it off. It's just about reducing the volume a little bit. And I think that that's what the mindfulness achieves. It's because you're now focusing on that uh, external point or internal point, this is depending on if you're doing the breathing or, or focusing on the external, external stimuli. Um, it's, um, it just lets the, it, it trains you to, to allow yourself to let those thoughts flow and not interact with them too much because it's very easy to, you know, when you, when you get one of those nasty thoughts in your mind and it, you can't let go of it, uh, it just keeps repeating and repeating and then you find yourself tensing. And, uh, and before you know it, it's, it's 6 a.m. and the sun's rising. So it's, it's about training yourself to just focus on a particular point and letting those thoughts flow so that uh, over time, the more you do it, when you catch yourself in one of those kind of thought spiral that's really getting your back up against the wall, you can bring that skill set back and just allow it to drift. And so I, I find that uh, personally quite helpful. Uh, but again, as I said, I'm, I'm no, uh, no expert on doing it. Uh, I, I regularly catch myself uh, <laughs> down those uh, annoying thought spirals. Yeah, it's it's so challenging, especially if you had a stressful day and a long day, or mm. you know you didn't get a a, a great night's sleep before. Um, yeah, uh, it's easy to just kind of go down that that rabbit hole. Uh, do you have any other? You talked about you know what I like about what you said in terms of you talked about running for your depression, but I like the idea of tiring yourself out. I found that that's been the most, and I realized like not only tiring myself out physically, but tiring myself out mentally, like making sure mm. I'm intellectually and cerebrally engaged uh, throughout yeah. parts of the day, whether it's practicing uh, my guitar or uh, taking mm. Spanish or a crossword puzzle. Like, it, you know, yeah. it sounds good to Netflix and chill, but then mm. your brain is also a muscle that needs to, it's like a nine-year-old that needs to get outside and play. And if I don't exercise yeah. it enough during the day, then it does keep me up at night. Or, you know, even just reading. Reading is a, a mm. great way for me to engage it. Do you have any other uh, t tips or tools or strategies for, uh, if not improving sleep, uh, for reducing nightmares or even dealing with night. I think the, I guess the bigger part is if somebody wakes up with a nightmare, what, how can they self-soothe themselves back to sleep mm. so that it doesn't spiral them out the following day? Okay. So that, I mean, that, that's a fantastic question because that's something that really we need to, to explore much more. Um, so there, there are a couple, uh, treatments that have, that have been put together for nightmares. There, there's something called imagery rehearsal therapy uh, that was uh, pioneered, um, I think, in Texas. Uh, and it's, it's got some pretty good evidence. Uh, one thing is, I don't think we're, we're sure as to how it works exactly, um, depending on you know, your, your school of thought in terms of psychology, if you're more uh, of a behaviorist or more of a, a, a cognitive psychologist. 
Um, but regardless, the evidence shows that it's uh, it's effective. Um, now, I don't think this is something that you could do um, as soon as you wake up from a nightmare um, because you'll probably be too stressed out. So firstly, one of the best ways to just reduce the likelihood that you're going to have nightmares is to make sure that before you go to sleep, you're as relaxed as possible. Because uh, from, from my data, the stuff that I've seen, uh, pre-sleep negative affect, so pre-sleep negative emotions and stress are the things that are going to mean that are going to mean that you're going to you're going to be more likely to have those nightmares. Um, and if you do have a nightmare, I think it's it's important to you know we 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 very quickly form associations with our environment. So when you have a nightmare, I think it's important to to try and you know don't sit in don't sit in it don't allow yourself to associate everything in your environment with that nightmare and that increase in arousal. So one of the things that they say, particularly with uh, insomnia, when you, you, you can't fall asleep, don't stay in bed and you know, associate that, what should be that peaceful environment with that inability to sleep. So what I would suggest probably is to, to actually get up for a little bit, try and clear your head, uh, so move away from that environment so you don't make those associations, all those negative emotions that have been brought up with the nightmare, don't stay in it. You know, don't, don't stay in that environment because you want to be able to come back to, to, the, to the bedroom or to, to that bed so that you, know, you feel this isn't a, an environment where I've experienced all that negativity. You, you want to be able to, to go back into it. Uh, I think the, whatever you find soothing, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult balancing act because you don't want to... Uh, increase your level of arousal. You don't want to, you know, start um, doing anything that's going to wake you up more. You want something that will definitely soothe you, but sometimes the, uh, the coping strategy that people use might actually increase your, uh, your level of arousal. Uh, one of the things that I would say is definitely uh, try not to, to take alcohol. That's only going to make your sleep more disturbed. It's going to, it's going to mess up your sleep architecture. So you're going to have uh, some... You might fall asleep faster afterwards, but your sleep is not going to be as restful. Um, and if you if you can do something that maybe soothes you, you know, if if you if you find reading soothing, then do some reading. If you find uh, music soothing, then listen to some music uh, as relaxing as possible. Um, I mean, for me, one of the the things that uh, I regularly uh, fall asleep with just classical music. Uh, so just having that on just really does help. So if I wake up, uh, I still have that, that kind of stuff in the background. And again, that, that's the kind of thing that I would just bring my attention to, focus on that for a bit. Let my thoughts just, you know, don't, don't interact with the thoughts too much. Just let them flow and try and breathe and, and get back to sleep just uh, bit by bit. Those are great. You know, one of the things I found with uh, reading to soothe is to make sure it's a, it's a fiction, but also like mm. relaxed fiction. I have some friends who read Stephen King at night and then they talk about, oh, no. they, and they, <laughs> right. So they can't sleep. <laughs> wow. So Okay. They're yeah. brave. Um, <laughs> so not yeah. good. And then also uh, found that reading self-help uh, is not good because mm. it, it, is, it activates that prefrontal cortex too much and gets you uh, mm. in a, in a thinking 
too much when you when you should be relaxing. So you want some soothing, relaxing, fun fiction uh, to put yeah. yourself uh, back to sleep. And then you talked about music. Uh, I found that binaural study music uh, is soothing, mm-hmm. or uh, like uh, thunderstorms, like some type of sound. Oh yeah, I love or, that. Yeah, yeah. To, to put you to sleep. That's- that's that's uh like i i i find that extremely relaxing you know that that kind of uh those um kind of white noise but you know nature kind of white noise those are great so Absolutely. actually yeah if it's not if it's not uh classical that's the kind of stuff that i'd be uh listening to um just to just to help me get back to sleep those are great yeah um well um, you know to wrap up is there is there anything mm-hmm. kevin that uh you feel like the listeners should know with this uh, in, in terms of your research, in terms of, uh, of, of improving their sleep or reducing suicidality or reducing self-harm, is there, is there anything that, that you feel like people really need to know right now moving forward? I, I think that uh, sleep is one of those things that as we, as we continue to, to get more research done, I think we're going to realize just how important it is. Uh, I think we, we're already picking, picking that up, but um, we're going to start pressing for, for, for sleep um, in terms of general health. I think it's often missed, uh, particularly if you go to you know, your, your family physician and so on. Sleep is one of those things that may not be at the utmost in our mind when we go there. Uh, but I think it's going to become a little bit more important as we press on. Uh, the, for, for listeners, I think it's important that routine really helps. And I think sleep is one of those things that can really frame the day and help people uh, just start off the day in a, in, a, in, a, in a good place and end the day in a, in a peaceful manner. And so if we, if we can make sure that people have a, a good, stable routine, keep regular hours, that always helps uh, in terms of uh, making sure that you know, we get enough sleep. I'm always reminded by, I spoke to uh, a clinician who I met a little while ago uh, called uh, Owen Gallivan down in, in Ireland. And uh, he told me of a, of a particular patient who he was uh, struggling with. Um, and he said, the, the one thing is, you know, sleep is one of those things that as a, as a clinical psych, I could really help with. And it was an easy win because the, the patient straight away saw the benefits to their life and so were able to, um, you know, they, they had that buy-in, they, the, that therapeutic relationship developed and so they, they were willing to try things a little bit more. So, uh, I, you know, that, that kind of thing really always speaks to me and makes me think we're, we're onto something if we, if we make sure that we can improve our sleep. Okay. Um, so routine is definitely one of those big things that we would uh, advocate for if possible. Okay. Not, always, not always easy. Kevin, thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. You're in, uh, are you in England? Uh, yeah, I'm in England in uh, Chester, so it's uh, just below Liverpool. If uh, if you know the the soccer teams over here. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I I ask this of all uh, of all my guests, you know, because I always imagine that there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before mm-hmm. you kill yourself, what would you say to them? Wow. Um, 
that's a that's a really tricky one. Um, I think I can't say anything. I'd have to listen first. And I'd have to listen to what they're going through because they deserve to be listened to. And, you know, I, I need to find out where they're coming from, what brought them here before I can even extend that hand to, to help them. So I, I think I'd, I'd have to listen to them and see what they say. Such a great answer, Kevin. Thank you so much for taking the time out to do this. Uh, I'll have a link to, to Kevin's. Uh, uh, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you and connect with you? Uh, so, well, you can find me on Twitter. It's uh, at Kev Hosard, uh, all one word. Um, if not, you can always just email me. I don't, I've not really uh, <laughs> dabbled with my own personal website yet. That's something that I really should do, but I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm a bit lazy when it comes to doing those things. Uh, but yeah, just send me an email uh, or just tweet me and I'll, I'll get back to you. Kevin Hochar, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you listeners for listening thank you, in. Leo. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the 800 suicide number, for you reaching out, going to group therapy, being proactive, uh, sharing your story. You need to be heard and listened to. Someone will do that. So... Uh, and if, uh, if you want, go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly, and we will talk to you soon.